And let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of his word. Gracious God and heavenly Father, even as the sunshine all around us, the Lord warms our hearts as it brings new life out of the earth, as it illuminates all that is around us so that we can travel, we can interact, we can move, we can live. So your word is the light unto our feet and the lamp unto our path. And we pray earnestly now, O heavenly God and Father, that by your Spirit's presence and power, you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe the wonders and the treasures that are found therein for the glory of your most holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Then turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read now the verses 12, or rather 11 through 36. 1 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 11. We'll read to verse 36, having considered the opening chapter and the first 10 verses. Hannah's song of chapter 2 will now continue our study of Samuel as we meet Eli's worthless sons. 1 Samuel 2, it's page 267, 267 in our pew Bible. 1 Samuel 2, verse 11. Hear the word of God. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all, his sons, all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, 
to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your son above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and go out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, I will lightly esteem, or shall be lightly esteemed. You know, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes, to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And, that, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall short or shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are frustrating things that we all experience in life. One of those frustrating experiences is the incompetence of others. Maybe you work in a large company, maybe you work in a business that has many employees, maybe you have even a manager or someone who is above you on the corporate ladder who has gotten to that position by falling upwards, by failing up. They were hired and they could never do any job sufficiently well to justify leaving them there. And so to get rid of them, they promoted them and then promoted them and then promoted them and now they are your boss. And they don't know what they're doing and they don't know how to instruct you. They don't know how to teach you. That's a frustrating thing. To have to work for someone who is himself or herself a fool, who is only interested in their own business, in their own success, in their own position, who is not interested in any way in dealing with the business or doing the work at hand. Incompetence in life is very frustrating, and not just in business. It is frustrating at school, it's frustrating uh, uh, in government, it's frustrating in so many ways. But we can get over the frustration. Incompetence may be frustrating, but we can deal with the frustration. What is terrible is when that incompetence, when that carelessness is found in people of position, of significant positions, of positions of power and authority. When a police officer 
uh, is unwilling to listen or to participate or to understand what is being asked of them or or what is being done of them and they and they instead use their position of authority to put someone in prison or to arrest someone that should never have been arrested should never have been in that position that is that is more than just frustrating that is dangerous that is difficult that is even painful when people in government uh, when people in government make decisions that do harm that that produce not positive outcomes but negative outcomes that is bad that 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 is bad for the nation that's bad for every citizen there are people in certain positions that their incompetence is not only frustrating but very dangerous and that's especially true within the church of Jesus Christ that's especially true when we think about what it means to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Not only now in terms of the special offices of the church, minister, elder, deacon, but even in terms of just generally as teacher in catechism, as kingdom seeker counselor, cadet counselor, as Sunday school teacher, as parent, as anyone who is called within the church of Jesus Christ to in their place and in their influence display the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Incompetence in those situations can also be frustrating, can also be discouraging, and it can also be very, very dangerous. That's what's before us this morning as we consider what it is that the Lord reveals to us in His Word from 1 Samuel 2 in the verses 11 through 36. We meet some very incompetent, some very wicked men, church leaders who are greedy, who are really thieves. That's really how we might describe these men. They are thieves. People would come to bring their offerings. We, of course, don't bring animal offerings to church. We bring, we bring cash offerings. You, maybe that's a good analogy. When the bag is passed, when the deacons give to you now the opportunity to thank the Lord for your gifts and offerings, imagine that you see them then at the back of the church, or maybe even as they're walking down the aisle to the front, imagine that you see them sticking their hand into that bag and then stuffing whatever they can grab into their own pocket. That's essentially what Hophni and Phineas were doing with that business of the three-pronged fork and the offerings. They were sticking their hand into the congregation's offering to the Lord, the sacrifices that they brought to the Lord to please Him, to praise Him, to offer their sin sacrifices, their thank offerings. The sons of Eli chose very much to instead fill their own pockets. And then they stole as well, didn't they, from those women. They stole their dignity. They stole their, their bodies who sat there by the front door of the church, who had come to the church to serve in the ministry of Jesus Christ. In the ministry of the king, these men forced themselves upon them and mistreated them, stealing from them what was not theirs, that did not belong to them. These women had not been given to them by the Lord, and yet Hophni and Phinehas were not so bothered by that. They said, Lord, we will take what we want. We will satisfy our own desires. And so it is that the Bible tells us these two men were very, very wicked. It says it at the very beginning. It says the sons of Eli were worthless men, which is a translation of a very good translation of a phrase 
The sons of Belial is what it literally says. They were sons of Belial. Not sons of Eli, sons of Belial. Which actually connects to chapter 1 because Eli thought that of Hannah. Hannah says to Eli, I am not a daughter of Belial. I am not a worthless woman. No, says the Lord, Hannah's not a worthless woman, but Eli's sons are worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. Not, not that they didn't know anything about Him. Not that they didn't know His Word. Not that they couldn't quote Scripture. It was that in that sense of intimacy, in that sense of personal surrender and service, in that sense of genuine Christian faith and love, they did not genuinely love Jesus Christ or the Lord or His Word. They did not love the Lord as they ought. They did not know the Lord. And that's why in verse 17, we read some very discouraging words. The sin of these young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. It's a terrible thing to hear about anyone, let alone a church leader, that their sin is very great in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to appreciate the depths of this sin for a moment. We need to reflect on what this means for the church at that time, even as we need to recognize what it would mean for us as congregation also today. There is a great deal of wickedness here that we can reflect on, even as there are no shortage of examples that we could raise and and list within the context of even our own denomination that would equal the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas. Even indeed, as I was preparing for this sermon, I began listing the men in the federation to which we belong who would fall under this same category of wickedness who would also be described as a son of Belial and the number just kept growing and growing and growing. There is in the church, we ought to acknowledge it, far too many examples of sexual abuse. There is in the church, we should acknowledge it, far too many examples of ministers who use their position to advance their own satisfaction, do desire to achieve their own successes, their own place of power and privilege. There is abuse in the church too. That's the same in the context of elders and deacons. There are times when men in the church desire to serve in the offices of the church, not in order to be a blessing to God's people, but in order to gain some prestige, in order to gain some standing within their community. And not just in the church offices again, there are those in homes, It is a grievous, grievous thing that we have to acknowledge that even in our homes there can be there can be the abuse of a father against his children, a mistreatment of his daughters and sons, a mistreatment of his wife emotionally, physically, even in the church there is abuse. And it's an awful thing, it's a wicked thing. And it must be condemned in the strongest possible terms. We must never protect it. We must never defend it. We must never say, but you don't understand. It must be called out. And it must be absolutely rooted out from within the church of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is when we hide it, when we put it under the darkness of a covering, that it only gets worse. Hasn't that been the history of the church when the church tries to hide the abuse that happens within it when it says, well, we'll deal with it within our own con- context. We will not call in the police. We will not call in the law that rightly condemns these things, that ought to arrest those men that do these things and put them in jail. Because that's where they belong. 
who defy God in so perverse a way. But instead of doing that, what we say is, well, let's, let's talk about grace and forgiveness and all the rest of it. And what a thing that is, what a thing that is, to leave people under that misery and to force them to endure that grief. That's, that's the real sorrow in all of this, isn't it? That's the awfulness of what made Hophni and Phinehas a sin that makes the sin of anyone who walks in this way, minister, member alike. What makes it so wicked is what God says when He says, For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The greater grief here, you understand, is not just that these men stole. It's not just that they stole food. It's not just that they stole women. It's that in so doing, they perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. These offerings were symbols of the way of forgiveness. They were expressions of God's grace towards His people. These men were to serve as mediators between the congregation and their God, between the sinful people and their righteous Lord. And they were to speak not only of the Lord's condemnation of sin, but that there was a way of restoration, a way of forgiveness, a way of grace, that there was a way of wholeness and peace. Hophni and Phinehas were to be saying to anyone and everyone, Rejoice in the Lord and join in praising God, for He has opened a way into reconciliation. But instead, instead of standing before the congregation and directing their gaze to the glories of their God, these men said, You will satisfy us. They stood in the place of God. They sat upon the throne of the Lord. They sat in Shiloh and said, This is our kingdom. This is our reign. You must fear us. And that's always the case in abuse. That's always the case in mistreatment. That's always the case when someone says, I'm more important than God. Whether it's a parent, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a minister of the Word. Anyone's abuse of another, anyone's theft is to be condemned. But when it's done within the context of the church by any Christian, it is heinous for it blots out the gospel, it darkens the sky of God's grace, and it plunges a people, maybe just a little family, maybe a congregation, maybe a denomination, maybe an entire nation into the darkness of sin, a darkness so deep, That there is no hope of restoration. It's not for nothing that so many who have suffered abuse within the church find it very difficult to continue worshiping in the church. It is a terrible thing when those who have been mistreated in the very place that they should have found hope and comfort are unable to enter into that place because of the trauma they've endured. The darkness of abuse within the church is a deep and dismal darkness that must be endlessly and forever condemned and exposed. And we must be forever vigilant. There is in this passage, therefore, a word to all of us, a word to parents, certainly a word to church leaders, undoubtedly. A word to us who have the opportunity to lead others in whatever capacity that may be. We're all given opportunity to be a blessing to others. We may be an older brother or an older sister and we may show our younger brothers and sisters 
what it means to listen to dad and mom, what it means to worship at church, what it means to be kind to others. We're all in a position of some authority. And for any of us to use that authority to fill our own pockets and to satisfy our own desires must forever be condemned. And yet we ought to notice as well and we ought to enter into the grief of this to some degree in as much as we are able appreciating how difficult it is for those who are under such abuse to condemn it. It's one thing to say it ought to be condemned. It's one thing to say for us that we should never uh, permit this within the church of Jesus Christ. But what do you do when it is the leadership of the church that is the one that's manipulating the system, that is the one that's abusing the people, that is the one that, is in the, that holds the control, the powers and the levers of control within the church? There's the greater grief, isn't it, for so many of us when it's a parent, when it's a father that has got everybody convinced he's godly and at home he's doing wicked things. What freedom do we have? Where can we go? We cry out, but no one believes us. There is such an injustice in that moment, such a grief in that pain. When we cannot be free because the one who smothers us is the one who has power over us. That's the grief also of this passage, isn't it? That's the grief of the Israelites in this moment because these men who do not know the Lord are also the men who hold the power, who sit in positions of authority, who are the ones the Israelites must come to in order to bring their gifts and offerings. What hope do a people have? What hope does a congregation have when they have an abusive spiritual leader? What hope does a nation have when they have an abusive leader on the throne? What hope does a a young child have when they have an abusive, a wife have when they have an abusive husband at home. Eli tries to do something about it. Eli is a good option. Eli is still the high priest, if you will. He is the one that has the final authority. Though he is very old. Very old, it says. He does warn his sons rightly. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the, or from all these people. It's not good that I hear what I hear from the people uh, of the Lord. And then he gives them what is the, some very profound words and words that we all ought to hear and meditate on. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him. There is an answer to that question. The answer is Eli. The answer is Hophni and Phinehas. The answer is the priests that have been appointed by God for that very purpose. But if they're wicked, then who's left? Well, praise be to God, there is one who's left. Because no matter how wicked and how depraved Hophni and Phinehas became, God was forever watchful. Notice how there came a man of God. We're not told his name. We're just told that he was a man of God. And he had a word from the Lord to Eli. And there's much that he says in that word to Eli. There's much that he says that is dark and difficult to understand. There are some very heavy words in this condemnation that the prophet spoke to Eli. And maybe even there we might say, why would you speak to Eli? It's not Eli. He, he said to his son, stop doing it. They wouldn't listen to him. What else could he do? Why condemn Eli? Why must Eli 
suffer. To some degree, we have to understand here how the Lord deals with His people because we tend to think individualistically. We tend to think, well, you stand before God on your own. But that's never been the case, has it, in the history of redemption? God has always dealt with His people covenantally. He's always chosen a head, and through that head, the family, Adam and all of his children, Abram and all of his children, Noah and all of his children, David and all of his sons. Eli was the head of this family. He was the one who had been given the privileged position. Indeed, doesn't the Lord rehearse that for him? He starts out by reminding Eli of just how gracious God had been to him. How the Lord had delivered him also from Egypt. How he had chosen him and his father's tribe to be the priests before him. How they had been given such great privilege from the Lord. The Lord had exalted them to this position. Not because they deserved it, but because God is faithful to his covenant. Don't miss that in the rehearsal of the the, the man of God in his condemnation of Eli. The Lord is not just saying, I've gotten sick of you, I'm angry with you, and, and I'm just going to destroy you because it's easier than having to do anything else. We do not want to think of God ill. We do not want to think of him as unduly angry or unduly judgmental. No, God says, listen to how I have been faithful to you, to how I've been gracious to you, to how I have blessed you, and you have chosen to respond to my favor. You have chosen to respond to my grace in so dismal and dark a way. You have chosen to fill your own pockets with my grace rather than giving that to the people who need it than to serving the people who are in such need. The Lord says, I have been faithful to you, Eli. But you and your family have been unfaithful to me. You have chosen to bless yourself rather than to serve your people. And therefore, says the Lord, judgment will come. And it is the most harsh and terrible of judgments. Wrath will reign upon this family so that there will never be an old man in his house. In distress, Eli's house will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that is bestowed upon Israel, but there shall not be an old man in that house forever. No, the Lord would preserve one. He would make sure that there was always one from the family of Eli left, but that one would be brought into this world to suffer. There shall come... Or rather, he says, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore the priest for a piece of bread, or a piece of silver, rather, or a loaf of bread, and they shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. It is a dark and dismal judgment. And it's terrifying to hear what the Lord says. To these, or to this man and to his family. He has cut them off and he has plunged them into misery. Now, before we get too bothered by the way in which the Lord deals with Eli and his family, at least note that there is something very just about what he does. That there is in this that principle of retributive justice of which the Bible is well known, maybe best known in that phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth which is, of course, not an actual application of the law of God. There is no law that says you must remove someone's eye if they remove an eye or break someone's tooth if they've broken a tooth. 
But what it means is that whatever crime you commit, the punishment must be fitting. And what is the crime that Hophni and Phinehas committed? What is the crime that Eli's family has committed? They've perverted the gospel of grace for their own benefit. They have hidden the glory of God and put themselves first. They have filled their own pockets rather than the blessings, rather than filling the hearts of the people with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so what is the punishment that they receive? They receive a punishment that demonstrates they are not God. That they are also under the, the judgment of God, under the Lord's thumb, under His ra- wrathful fist. They believe they can escape His judgment. He will demonstrate that they cannot for generations. And they fill their pockets with the wealth of God's people. God says, I will so empty them that you will plead for just a piece of bread. You have to see that the judgment of the Lord here is not unnecessarily cruel though cruel it is it is entirely just God says to Hophni and Phinehas to Eli and his sons you've chosen this path I will now force you to walk it endlessly if you wish to walk apart from me if you wish to rebel against me then you bear the consequence of that rebellion we ought to be impressed by this we ought to be terrified by this this ought to cause our hearts to tremble even today that the Lord should so deal with even his priests that he should count from them righteousness that he should demand from them obedience and where they have failed that he would bring so great a judgment ought to make all of us tremble And it ought to make us remember what the real issue for the church in this day is. This day of such immorality and wickedness. This day of such debauchery and sin. Yes, we are surrounded by a culture that is utterly, utterly wicked. And that desires to captivate and capture the hearts of our children. The hearts of our own lives. Who want us to wander from the faith and from the way of obedience. Yes, we live in a, in a community, in a, in a culture that is endlessly at war with us. Who desires to destroy us, even as the nations around Israel desired to destroy her. The church today, as it has always done, faces threats and challenges. And those threats are always greater than the church can ever Withstand. We cannot possibly hope to withstand the perversion of our world. The hearts of our youth, the hearts of our members cannot be guarded and guided by us in our strength as parents, as teachers, as preachers, as congregation. We are simply not equal to this task and we should know that. But the problem the church has had has never been that the enemy's too strong. That the threat is too great. That the burden is too heavy. The church has never failed because of her enemies. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. The only reason the church ever fails is because it forgets her Lord. Because it has leaders like this. 
Because the judgment that God brings upon them is the just judgment of their own wickedness. Just read the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And hear how the Lord warns them, I will take my lampstand from you. Go now to Asia Minor. Go see where those churches were if you can find their their places. Why are there no churches there? Why have those churches fallen? It is not because the world is too wicked. It is not because the culture is too condemning. It is because the church loses her first love. Because the church no longer fears her God. Because the church no longer says, we have to do with a righteous and holy God who is faithful to His covenant and whose promises are yes and amen. Yes, even the promises to condemn. Covenant unfaithfulness is the church's great downfall. Forgetting the Lord of glory who rules the heavens and the earth, thinking that we can produce a better outcome, that we can do things more faithfully or obediently or righteously than God can in His Son, Jesus Christ. When the church turns its attention to satisfying the culture or the congregation or the leadership, she has lost her first love and the danger of being cut off, of suffering this outcome, is very real. We should know that. We should tremble at that thought. We should recognize That when we as a congregation lose sight of our King, we are exposed and under the judgment of that same King. We ought to tremble. And yet in that trembling we ought to rejoice. At the thought that our failure is so severe, we ought to rightly tremble, but we ought to also rejoice in so great a God and glorious as we serve. For notice that throughout this dark passage of Scripture, and dark it is, there is a refrain. It begins in verse 11. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then we hear those dark words of Hophni and Phinehas and their theft and their cruelty. And then we meet this. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. His mother would bring him a robe. He would wear the ephod. He was a little priest. A little priest. Not able in any way to exercise influence or power. Make no mistake, he's still a very young boy. But he looks like a priest. And the boy Samuel, we're told, grew in the presence of the Lord. And then Eli tells his sons to repent, but they refuse to. And then the man of God comes, or then Eli rather, after he's told his sons to repent, but they refuse to. We read now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then comes that man of God. And at the end of it, in verse 1 of chapter 3, we read now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Little sort of moments. Quiet little words. Not a lot of explanation. Not a lot of testimony there. We, we have a lot more about Hophni and Phinehas and the judgment that came upon Eli and his house. But interwoven in all of that darkness, there is like almost like a firefly. Soon the fireflies will come out again. And they're so lovely to see on a summer's night coming out of the grass. And, and they flicker just a little bit. It's hard to see exactly where they are because they don't stay on very long. And that's the case here. There's a little flicker, a little light. 
Oh, but Samuel, there's that light again. And then we are drawn into the darkness of Hophni and Phinehas, and then that light again. And then we're drawn into the unrepentance of these, and then that light. And then the judgment of, oh, and there it is again. And that little light, you understand, may seem so insignificant. It's cute. It's cute. Samuel in his little ephod with his little priestly robe. Isn't he cute? Isn't he tender? What a lovely little boy. But in that little light, in that almost imperceptible glow, is the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. There in that little weakness, that smallness, that nothingness, tucked into the very darkness, in the place of the darkness of Israel, where the wickedness and immorality of the people is most keenly seen, there is this little firefly. Now notice, he's not the solution to the problem. Don't misunderstand that. The Lord's not saying, Hophni and Phinehas, you're so wicked, I'll kick you out and put another guy in your place. Because the Lord knows that even Samuel is not equal to this task. The text will tell us that. We will meet Samuel later on who reminds us very much like Eli who has also two sons that are wicked and are cruel and immoral. Oh no, the Lord isn't saying, listen, I got a better leader for you. Another man like these men, another flawed and broken sinner that I'm going to give into this position of leadership. Oh no, that's not what the Lord is saying at all. Remember what the man of God said to Eli in his speech to him. He says in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. In the very short term, this promise will be fulfilled in the priestly ministry of Zadok and the kingly ministry of David. Zadok will replace Eli's family, and David will become the anointed, the Messiah, the king of Israel. But there is in this promise a greater promise, isn't there? The promise of Jesus Christ. The promise of a Savior who would take the reins of his people and no longer subject them to the immorality of such wicked men as Hophni and Phinehas, such flawed men as even Samuel is, as any man is. Imagine that the church of Jesus Christ were dependent upon a man. Imagine that your life, the enjoyment of your life, was dependent upon a man. Imagine that you could not escape the wickedness of a man. We would be so despairing in this life. We would have no hope. We would look at those in power. We would look at those in positions of authority over us, especially the, those who are incompetent, those who are cruel. And we would say, what hope is there for us? What possible deliverance can we ever experience? There are people, even in the church, that have asked that question, who have wrestled with that grief, who have been burdened by that brokenness. When the darkness seems so dark. And yet the Lord says, I'm sending my anointed. And as proof of that, as proof of that, before any of this had happened, The Lord had already begun to work a great work. He had given to Hannah new life. That life had been dedicated to the Lord. That life was being raised in the temple. The Lord was already preparing for the coming Christ. 
And this is so often the way in which the Lord works. Unseen and unknown, the Lord's grace is often ministered to us long before we ever realize it. The faithfulness of the Lord to His covenant resulted in Eli's condemnation, but it also results in Israel's redemption. Because the Lord loves His people. The Lord redeems His people. The Lord keeps covenant with His people, undeserving though they be. The Lord was already at work bringing about the salvation of His children, freeing them from the leadership of these wicked, indeed every wicked leader ever in the history of the world. David was the first expression of this fulfillment. But he himself proved to be an abusive tyrant. Ask Uriah. Indeed, so many of the leaders of our world, of our homes, of our churches, communities, have the clay feet that are displayed on the pages of Scripture. But thanks be to God, there is one who is perfect. There is one who is never abusive, never cruel, never harms, never lives selfishly. That the leader of the church of Jesus Christ today is not Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, Samuel, David, Zadok, or any other broken man. That Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who gave His life that you and I might be saved. The one who loves you so perfectly, so deeply, and so truly that He died on the cross. Whatever else the world may say to you, whatever else your own heart may say to you, in the darkest of your moments when you are experiencing the brokenness of this life and you wonder, Lord, why? You will never need to wonder this, that He loves you. Because you need only come to church and you need only be brought again to the cross of Calvary. You only need to sit for a moment on the hill of Golgotha and remember that the Son of God took on flesh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, so that you might be delivered from all of this misery, so that you might be saved and entered into an eternity that is most glorious and great. He is the guarantee that the church will never be overwhelmed by the wickedness of this world and that those who oppose Him will be condemned and that judgment will bring about blessing. Jesus Christ is the answer to the darkness of this life, to the frustration we experience, to the despair that our hearts can feel at times, to that anxiety and wonder, how can it ever be good? When will it ever turn around? We have this as our answer. Jesus Christ is King, and He will work His power. God is counting the failings of those who rebel against Him, and He will pour out His wrath upon them. Of that be sure but be encouraged in the season of darkness that the light is, has come and is coming. That no matter how dark the darkness is, it is scattered with a single beam of light, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what this passage holds before us. It brings us into the misery of life. And it shows us precisely why we need a Savior. For this is the reality of men. This is what happens when you give man unrestrained authority. He turns it into his own depravity and wickedness. From which we can only be redeemed and delivered by the power of the living God. But thanks be to God that He does deliver us. That Samuel did grow and develop in the presence of the Lord 
that he was ministering in that house of Eli, that in that darkness, the faintest of lights still glowed. For it testifies to the power of God in Jesus Christ to overcome the darkness, to defeat the wicked, and to establish his people in a glorious kingdom free to worship him. That's the king that we serve. That's the king that rules us today. That rules us in the darkness of this time too. In His providence and in His wisdom, He gives to us seasons of darkness. There are no easy answers as to why that is. There is no simple way as to, ex- to explain how come we must at times suffer so. But this we can be certain, that the darkness will be scattered. For the light has come. And He is our Lord. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that darkness can be deep and difficult. That for some of us, O Heavenly God and Father, it can be overwhelming. Indeed, there may come a time, O Heavenly God and Father, especially in our culture and in our context, as we see things going from bad to worse, that as a church we may find ourselves just crying out, Why, Lord, why? With the psalmist of old, why have you forsaken us? We may find ourselves in some very deep and dark places. Maybe there are some among us now, Lord, that, are, that have been there. Maybe they're there right now. It's no easy thing, O Heavenly God and Father. We acknowledge that. But shine your light in that darkness. Show the way out by your grace. Encourage and comfort the downtrodden and the fearful by the power of your grace in Jesus Christ. May they know that you are counting the sins of those who, who mistreat them. And that you, are sending a, you have sent, rather, a son to deliver us from the effects of these things, from the burden of these things, that there is coming a day, maybe not in this life, maybe in the life to come, where we will be free, where we will be whole, where we will be unstained, unbroken, And may that encourage us, O Heavenly God and Father. May we see that that is the only hope that we have. Help us not to despair, O Heavenly God and Father, and so depart. But help us instead to rejoice and to remain. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.